0: If you have a Bible, go to open to uh, Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, we're continuing in our series in this book of Mark. If you don't have a Bible, we're going to put the text up on the screen for you. And uh, if you don't have a Bible at all, we would love to outfit you with one. At the close of the service, you can go to the Commons, which is our bookstore right in the middle of our campus, and tell the staff in there you'd like one of the free Bibles. They'll make sure that they get you one, and then you can take that home with you and read it bring it here with you on Sunday's When, when you are here. Last week, um, and if you missed any of these messages in this Mark series, I would encourage you to go to redemptionaz.com, which is our uh, church website, select the Gilbert Congregation, and you can follow along and find any of the sermons that you might have missed. Um, and last week, uh, Tim talked about eight distinctives or characteristics, traits of followers of Jesus. So people who follow Jesus, they kind of have these eight things that their life looks, looks like. And this week, we're going to look at some things that are very distinct about the relationship that Christ has with his followers. So last week we looked at kind of unique characteristics of followers. This week we're going to look at something very unique about Christ towards those who who follow. And there's this always, there's this consistent message in the book of Mark. We're going to be confronted with it again. It's actually a question that Mark poses to his readers. And the question is this, what are you going to do about Jesus? Who do you say that he is? Who is he to you? And perhaps you haven't wrestled, you're you're still wrestling with that question. Perhaps you haven't answered it yet. And maybe that's part of the reason why you're here. Maybe that's why, you know, you keep coming with the person who keeps inviting you is because you're still kind of trying to work through that. It could be that you haven't answered it because you, quite frankly, don't see why it matters. And you're just kind of tagging along because you're like, okay, maybe you'll you'll tell me why I, I even should be a follower of Jesus Christ. And I want to tell you something. I think that is a great question. I think that's a perfectly normal question. Everyone keeps talking about follow Jesus, follow Jesus. Well, why? Why should I follow Jesus? And I think in our text today, we're going to see something that's very compelling to us about why we would be and should be followers of Jesus based on this very important trait um, and characteristic of Christ. Let's look at this story together. Mark chapter 6, we're going to start in verse thirty. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. So that's another reason I love Jesus. He's concerned about eating. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. And now many saw them going and recognized them and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And when he went ashore, this is Jesus, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late. So send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Jesus answered and he said to them, you give them something to eat. And I said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, "'How many loaves do you have? Go and see.' And when they had found out, they said, "'Five and two fish.' And then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. And so they sat down in groups by hundreds and fifties, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied." And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Verse 45. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land. And lastly, verse 53, And when they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. When they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came in, villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Let's pray and ask God to help us with this passage this morning. God, we thank you for uh, just another day, God, for us to be able to proclaim and to sing about and to celebrate how good you are, God, and how good you are to us. So, God, that we are so grateful and humbled by even another opportunity to open your word and to um, hear from you ultimately. And so, God, I just pray that in your mercy and in your grace and by the power of your spirit, God, that you would open our eyes to see what you would have us to see, God, that you would allow us to hear what you would want us to hear from you, and God, that you would give us hearts that are soft and fertile, God, where your word can take root and bring about transformation. God, I pray that we would not just be people who hear this word, but God, that we're people who do what you tell us to do so that we might glorify you, God, that we might bring honor and fame to you, God this is always for you, Jesus. This is always and only about your name and your fame. And so, God, I pray that when we leave here today, the only person we talk about is the person of Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, I just pray for the gift of preaching. I pray, God, that you would remove distractions in my own heart and my own mind and in this room, God, that we would have clarity uh, to be able to hear from you. In your name we pray. Amen. And so, this text that we're having this morning, I believe Jesus is, is once again giving credence for why we should trust him, why we should have confidence in, in him. And we're going to look at these two miracles, the feeding of the 5,000 and and the walking on the water. These are two of the most famous miracles of of Jesus. In fact, the feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle that's mentioned in all four gospel accounts. Um, But they're also quite often the target of people who are skeptics against Christianity and against Christ. But for those who are followers of Jesus, these accounts bring a rich truth about Jesus. I think it has massive impact on our lives today. Because they tell us something very um, important and I think particular about the nature of Jesus Christ. Well, there's also something very interesting in this text that we're going to see as it kind of weaves its way through. And and that Jesus is the fulfillment of so much Old Testament expectation. And this story is aimed at a particular uh, part of the nature of Jesus, um, His compassion, so if, if you like to highlight or you like to underline, you see that word in the text there. It might be just something that you kind of circle. But that's kind of the banner that flies over this passage is the compassion of Christ. In the New Testament, the word compassion is only used by Jesus or to speak of Jesus. And it's more than just pity. It's more than just him just feeling sorry because it, it suggests actual help. And, and the miracles dramatically set forth Jesus as this great man of compassion, of human needs, as a, as a supplier of those needs when ordinary resources are insufficient. And the main point for us that we, that we want to hone in on and that we want to notice, the main thing we don't want to miss, so if you're going about to doze off in a second, just at least write this down first. This is kind of the, the main point for us to notice today, is to see the compassion or the help or the provision of Jesus and to come to Him in faith confident in his ability to sustain and satisfy. The main thing we want to draw from the text this morning is we want to see the compassion, the help, the provision of Jesus Christ. And we come to him in faith. We come to him confident in his ability to sustain and satisfy. We're going to see that we can come to Jesus in three ways this morning. In the first section in verse 30 through 44, we see that we can come to Jesus with our need. We can come to Jesus with our need. And then in the next section, verse 45 through 52, we see we can come to Jesus with our fear. The Moments in life when we're afraid and we're fearful, we can come to Jesus with our fear. And then lastly, we see that we can come to Jesus with our pain. So let's kind of dive into these stories here. Here's where we left off. Last week, we saw that Jesus had sent out his followers for the very first time. So by the time we get to verse 30, they're all back. They're returning to Jesus. They want to report on the activity of their ministry. And the scripture tells us that they're pretty exhausted. And so in in Luke's gospel, he says they're going to go to Bethsaida, which is a small little kind of fishing village about eight miles away just to get some some R&R. But the crowds hear about it. Jesus is quite famous, and they all show up in Bethsaida before the disciples and and, and Jesus get there. And so you can imagine disciples, and and I've said this before, but when we're reading these narratives, it's important not to just check your brain at the door because you maybe have heard the story a million times, but to really use your imagination. Put yourself in the story. So put yourself in the shoes of the disciples who are, they're just wore out. They're flat out exhausted, uh, and they just want to get a break. They just want to get a break from people, and so they head to this village where there's Supposed to be able to get a break, and lo and behold, the very people that they're trying to get away from are right there, needy uh, uh, again. More so, if if you are a parent of little children or have had little children in the past, this is all too familiar. This feeling here. So I have a, I have a theory. We have, we have uh, five, four, and two-year-old uh, children, and I have a theory that they have like spidey sense for when um, I want to enjoy something or relax, and there's, like, a little alarm that kind of goes off in them, like, and and especially football season. That's when it really seems to be in high gear, but they just kind of know. They know, and so I've had to learn, like, there are certain tells, like, laying down on the couch or eating potato chips. Those are things I just can't, can't do. But I remember the the first time we ever went on like a vacation with the kids and I was just so excited. I was like, okay, we've been just kind of stressed. Everything's been going nuts. So we're all going to go and everyone's just going to chill out. It's going to be great. It's vacation. That's what we do on vacation. And I, I was like a day into it and I was like, why is everybody freaking out? Like, why is it worse than normal? And my wife's like, this is not a vacation. This is a trip this is just an away game you you have to understand that like it's all the chaos of home without any of the assets so she's like you're frustrated it's your fault and but but that's the feeling here that's the feeling here the disciples are like oh we just want a break we just want to get away and yeah it's 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 more people it's the more people and so but but look at verse 34 look at how Jesus responds to this when he went ashore he saw the great crowd and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. The compassion of Jesus is not just for the physical need of people, but also for their, their lostness. So, when, when he uses that phrase, sheep without a shepherd, it's an Old Testament picture of Israel without spiritual leadership and care. And, and there's, there's different ways that we're going to see in these miracles here where these, these Old Testament expectations are fulfilled. And, and here we see that Jesus is a true and better shepherd. At the end of verse 34, he sits them all down. He begins to, to teach this compassionate shepherd. He knows that they need to be taught. He teaches them all day long. And then dinnertime rolls around and the disciples say, hey, we got to figure out something for these people. So let's just send them away so that they can go get something to eat, right? And we like to give the disciples a hard time, but you know what? This is the same thing that we do, isn't it? When there's somebody who comes into our life and their need is just too big or too great or too complicated, we say, okay, let me see who I can line you up with. Like, who are the experts that I can send you to? Who are the purveyors of religious goods and services that I can send you along to? Because your need is too complicated. Your need is too great. And what I have to offer is just so small and so insignificant. I could never get it done. And plus, I really don't have the time. I'm pretty tired. Um, So let me just kind of send you along. So the disciples, they make a very practical suggestion in the text. They said, okay, let's send them away to get food. It's logical. It makes sense. It's, it's not even necessarily from bad motives. They just didn't have the resources to meet this enormous need. And their suggestion was practical, but it was also short-sighted but because they assumed that there was no other way. So when they see this scene here, they don't see 5,000 people. They see 5,000 problems for which they do not have an answer for, for which they do not have resources for. But notice how Jesus answers in instruction the first part of, of verse 37. He says, you give them something to eat. And, 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 and so the text tells us here that there's 5,000 men. Now that number doesn't include women and children. So the conservative estimate on the total number of people that are out in the wilderness here, out in this desolate place, are about 15,000 people. So there's 12 men instructed by Jesus to give 15,000 people something to eat. What would you do? So, so they start to kind of crunch the numbers. One of the gospels says that Philip is kind of like the accountant. He, he just starts to think in fully, in logical terms. And in verse 37b, he says, okay, well, it's going to be about 200 denarii, which is about eight months' salary for us to, just to buy bread for them. But Jesus isn't thinking about having someone else cater a massive dinner. Instead, he has them kind of go out and see what they have on hand. And so they track down what one of the gospel writers tells us is a, a boy's lunch, and they, get fi- and they get these five loaves of bread, and before you think like, a, you know, it's not like a loaf of Wonder Bread, it's, it's like these hard barley biscuits about the size of a Twinkie. And so they bring five of those back, and, and barley was uh, like a poor man's bread, so they got these little kind of biscuits, and then they bring two, what are essentially sardines. So it's barely enough food for one person, it's a little boy's sack lunch, and they, and they, and they bring that, Right? So imagine how ridiculous this must feel to them. But that's exactly where God wants us. God wants us to be in situations of service to others where our lack is painfully obvious and His fullness is overtly glorious. All He wants from us is what we have right now. And when we hold on to what we have because of greed or because of selfishness or because of insecurity, because we think it's too small or too insignificant or too broken, then we're limited in what we can do. But when we transfer whatever it is that we have into the mighty hands of Jesus, what he can do is limitless. I was reading this story and I was, I was, I was thinking about this this weekend. And I thought this is exactly what grace is, right? The superabundance of God himself in our lives. We bring him something laughable even offensive, but yet he's able to use it and to take it and to bring to us fulfillment in him, satisfaction in him. And sometimes he even does something really crazy and that he uses whatever we bring to him to bring fulfillment and satisfaction and hope, maybe even salvation, to someone else. So, he gets everybody together and, they, and they, he groups him up. And again, this scene is significant hearkening back to what we see in the Old Testament. So they, they would have made the connection to Psalm 23. Psalm 23, famous psalm where the, the shepherd makes his sheep to lie down in the green pastures. So again, we see he's the true and better shepherd. And then the grouping of people is also significant too in the in the 50s and the 100s because that's what Moses did with the people of Israel in the wilderness after their, their exodus. So we see him as the true and better shepherd. We see him as a true and better Moses. And then he takes the bread and he takes the fish, verse 41 and 42, and he continues to to break the bread. And he continues to give and give and give and give and give. And in his creative power, all of them ate and all of them were satisfied. And they even have leftovers. They even take up an abundance. And and you got to understand, and maybe because we're so familiar with the story, it doesn't really shock us. But in this day and age, nobody ate like that. This type of feasting would have been truly radical. I mean, usually we're not worried about having enough food. We're more worried about like, oh, I ate too much. But, but here, Jesus fully satisfies starving people. And, and it's another Old Testament promise that's being fulfilled in him that, that a Messiah would come and dine with his people. This, this picture of intimate and covenant fellowship. And so here he is again. And, 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 and it also kind of connects to a story in Second in Kings chapter 4 where Elijah the prophet takes these, these barley loaves again and multiplies them and, and feeds people there. So we're seeing Jesus is a, a true and better shepherd. He's a, a true and better Moses. He's a true and better prophet. And the whole reason that Mark is using this Old Testament imagery and this language is because he's trying to show that Jesus is the Savior that they've been waiting for, that he is the long-expected one, and that he is filled with compassion, and that you can come to him with your need, and that he will satisfy. And so the question for us, we have to stop right here in the middle of the story, because the question for us is this, where uh, do we go in times of need? What are we relying on to satisfy that need? Our own resources, our own creativity, our own ingenuity, our own willpower? And I think what we learn from this text is that while those things are all good, they're all not enough. Human resources inevitably wear out. Creativity and ingenuity always has some kind of flaw that's attached to it. And, and as far as your willpower goes, that, how many stories do we have of, of willpower that just gets shipwrecked because of our desires that are too strong? When we rely on ourselves and we ignore and dismiss the compassion of a heavenly father, we engage in a sort of a practical and functional atheism, which means that we don't believe that God is who he says he is. In this story, it's not about the food, it's about the faith. In this story, it's not about the food, it's about the faith. I, I find it so interesting how the disciples talk to Jesus. They, they say to him, God, I'm not sure you're paying attention to what's going on with the time of day, but it's getting late, nobody's eaten, right? This is God, by the way, who transcends time and space. And they're trying to say, hey, you probably haven't checked your watch in a while, but it's getting late. Do you know how many people we have here? Do you know how little food we have? Do, do you know that we have a problem? Are you oblivious to the problem God, and before we, you know, give the disciples too much flack, do we not do the same thing? When we're, when we're faced with a need, we act like God has no idea what's going on. And we also act like God can do nothing about it. Either and we neglect Him in our time of prayer, or we are just so wrapped up in our anxiety and our, and our tension about it. And listen, I fully understand. Last hour, I prayed with a woman right over here, and she said, I've just been in pain for so long, and I'm starting to think that God doesn't know, or that God is unaware, or that, that, that God doesn't hear me. So I get it, I understand, but what we have to remember is the compassion of God. That in your story, with your need, it's not about the food, it's not about the need, it's about your faith, it's about the confidence of God being grown in you. The scripture says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, that we're to walk by faith, not by sight. Even if you're not a church person, you may have kind of heard that phrase out there somewhere, don't walk by uh, sight, walk, walk by faith. But what that means is that we adjust our expectations to include what only God can do, and we reject every thought that leaves God out of the equation. We are not here as followers of Jesus. We're we're not commissioned to just do the doable. We're here to be living proof of what only God can do. And so walking by faith means that we no longer live like orphans or fugitives or atheists, right? Because we are, those of us who are followers of Christ, we are sons and daughters of the Most High King. And we know that He cares about our hunger. He cares about our need. He cares about our mess. He cares about the hunger and the mess of the world. And He wants to pour His fullness, the overabundance of who He is, into us so that we're amazed at how we're able to serve others because somehow, radically, miraculously, God has entered in. That is to be the story that we tell as people of God. Aren't you sick of the small story of you? Here's what I mean. Aren't you sick of just living a life where you're only just trying to consume and only trying to see how much you can get and just kind of hoard how much you can get and make it all about you and, and, and your effort and your whole life is a life that has this orbit around you? Has that not wore you out yet? Because it will if it hasn't. Wouldn't you want to live in the bigger story of a compassionate Savior who's able to do more than we can dream or imagine, the Scripture tells us that, who loved extravagantly, who graciously served with reckless abandon, who humbly laid down his life for the sake of others, who took the small and the insignificant, and he multiplied fulfillment and satisfaction and hope to those who had no means? Would you not rather live in that story? The point of our lives is the glory and the honor of God seen and made known in the all-sufficiency of Jesus and the fulfillment and the satisfaction and the joy that he brings to real people living in the real world. The the world is hungry. The world is starving, literally and spiritually. And only Jesus has the fullness that they are dying for. And, And they don't see his fullness, but he sees their need. And he's ordained He's chosen, the scripture says, before the foundation of the world to work through us, to care for them through us with our little loaves and our little fishes. We give our lives away for his glory, for their, for their good. And so here's the question. Why not start right where you are? That's what Jesus is trying to teach the disciples. That's what Jesus is trying to teach us. Start with what you have. Start right now. Start with where you are. You do not need the church. You don't need us to come up with some kind of program, some kind of avenue, some kind of vehicle so that you can do this. Just right where you are, wherever God has put you, you just need to be open to Jesus. Amen. Do we really believe that Jesus is the fullness and the satisfaction and the hope for our generation? Do we really believe that people, apart from Christ, when they die, spend eternity in a place called hell? Do we really believe that Jesus and and through Jesus alone brings salvation and hope to a generation of lost and wandering sheep? So what do you do? You can start by just simplifying your life. I get it. Oh, yeah, I'd love to do that. You have no idea how busy and crazy and all the obligations I have. Yes, Yes, I do. But simplify your life. And here's what I mean by simplifying your life. At least be intentional about it. At least be intentional about, about your life. If you've got commitments that keep you from people that are far from Christ, rearrange your schedule, rearrange your life, rearrange those commitments. Ask God, ask God, would you, would you bring people who are far from Christ, would you bring them into my life, would you bring them into my neighborhood, would you bring them uh, into my workplace, would you bring them into my class, would you bring them into my small group? We, uh, uh, my next door neighbor just recently, uh, uh, like last week, got married, and he married a gal, also he's also an unbeliever she's an unbeliever and and she's got uh two kids from a previous marriage and so right before they got married he came over we were in the front yard kind of hanging out and and uh he came over and he was talking to us just about kind of this their marriage coming up and my wife and I had been talking about like hey do we want to move is it time to move I, I think our kids are almost done destroying the house that we live in now so maybe it's time to try to find another house and so we've just been kind of looking and talking and and kind of see what that was and you know you do all that research on stuff and so that's kind of been on our mind a little back burner stuff talking about moving and he comes over and he's like hey I'm getting ready to get married and you know I'm kind of nervous because I've never been a dad before and now I'm going to be like an instant dad and so I'd love to you know just have you guys kind of walk alongside to us and kind of be with us and, and, you know, talk to us about how we raise kids. He's like, I know you guys discipline kids. Our house are really close together. He's like, I hear you. So I know you guys discipline, uh, your kids. And, uh, you know, and so we said, oh, that would be great. And we were, we were pretty stoked because we've just been praying that God would give us platform and opportunity. And then he, he said, uh, he's like, man, I hope you guys aren't planning to move soon. I said, well, we aren't now. Thank you. But, uh, but, that, but, that, but that's, that's what it is, an, an intentionality in your life that, God, would you just bring opportunity? Would you, would you bring people so that we can share the compassion of Jesus Christ? God, would you fill us up so that we can be poured out? You don't need a polished presentation to sell people Jesus. You just need to live your life in front of them in a way that shows that he is more beautiful and he is more breathtaking than anything else because he is we need to stop thinking that following Jesus is going to make our life easier. It makes our life better. I think people who follow Jesus have a, have a way better life than people who don't. Yeah. But it's not easier. It's more difficult, but it's infinitely more glorious. The, the greatest life is the one that lives out of the fullness of Jesus for the benefit of others and for the glory of God. For the benefit of others, especially those that no one else cares about. In in this miracle here, Jesus is teaching his followers that when we serve him and when we give and when we give and when we give and when we give and we feel like we can't give anymore, that he will supply our needs. If you pour your life out to give bread to the world, Jesus will be your all-satisfying bread. The more you satisfy others, the more he will be your satisfaction. The more you give your life to others, the more Jesus will be life to you. And what this miracle shows and the miracle that follows it shows is that there's no ministry for the name or, or no, uh, Jesus or no ministry for the renown of Jesus. There's no storm in his service where every need will not be supplied, chiefly the need for Jesus. And, and one of the things that's always consistent in our church, and not just our church, every church, is that there's people in our body, people in our family that are experiencing burden and difficulty and hardship and, and loss. There's a quote by C.S. Lewis, and he says that faith, or when I say faith, I mean a confidence in God, faith must be tested because it can only become your intimate possession. And I love that phrase faith can only become your intimate possession through conflict. There's a scripture that speaks to that in 1 Peter. Peter writes to this church that was suffering at the time, and he says this in chapter 1, verse 6 and 7. He says, In all this you greatly rejoice though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. There's a a couple in our church, Gary and uh, Carly. Gary and Carly have uh, three kids. They have their fourth on May 9th of this year so just recently they had another baby um, two days after the baby was born she was informed that she has stage four cancer during her pregnancy she had pneumonia symptoms but what she actually was feeling were the effects of the cancer that she had during her pregnancy so you can just imagine three kids new baby on the, here stage four cancer so you can imagine the, the prayer the questions, the struggle, the tension, the trial, um, they have a like a Caring bridge kind of website thing where they have updates on it, but they also write on Facebook about some of the things that they 're going through and so this weekend, there was a thing that came up on my Facebook feed from Gary kind of talking about some of the stuff that 's going on right now, and so um, she 's about to start her chemo treatment and um, I actually have been leaving this part out all day, but it's pretty cool. So she's about 15 minutes to start her chemo treatment. And they get interrupted in the middle of their treatment. They said, hey, there's another drug that you can take. There's a medication that is available. Um, it, as chemo, you know, how it works is kind of like scorched earth policy on your cells. It just kind of attacks the good and attacks the bad. And she said there's a, there's a new medication um, that's effective on the bad, won't attack the good. You'll still have the same kind of side effects, but at least it's only attacking the bad cells. And so they get this 15 minutes before she's supposed to have her chemo IV. So there, but this medication is available to them. So they're, of course, very excited about that. There's a little bit of a hitch with the medication. The price tag on this medication is $14,000 a month. So Gary, shares. he starts to write about that. And then the financial department at the hospital and the medical supplier rep and the insurance all kind of get together and they take that price of $14,000 a month for this medication down to $35 a month. And then, hold your applause. <laughs> and then the drug company gets involved and it takes it down to $10 a month. So you can imagine just the elation. You can imagine just kind of how incredible that is for them. So Gary writes about that. He says, Carly and I are so amazed at how faithful God is in spite of our little faith. And he quotes Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22 and 23. He says, because of the Lord's great love, We are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning, faithfulness. And he writes, at the hospital when this all began, I prayed with Carly that God would go on display in this. And honestly, it was a helpless cry. We will never know all the ways God is using this, but there is no doubt that He is showing Carly and I every day that He is in this and that He has not forgotten us, whether it is in the unbelievable outpouring of love and support from friends, family, strangers, or, or showing us with situations like this with the medication. And then I love how He ends this. He says, God is so gracious and worthy of praise, regardless if things go our way or not. It's not about the food. It's about the faith. It's not about the medication. It's about the faithfulness of God. In this story in Mark chapter 6, and our stories here, it takes a supernatural miracle of God. It requires the kindness and the compassion of Jesus to satisfy the needs of those on the mountainside, and it takes the very same thing to satisfy the needs of those in this room this morning. And so it begs of us the question. Who are you putting your trust in? Where or to whom are you taking your needs? Because what this proves to us is that you can come to Jesus with your need. Because he is a compassionate shepherd who's able to do far more than we can hope, dream, dare, imagine. We see first that we can come to him with our need. We see in the second account that we can come to him in our fear. So quickly, in in verse 45, Jesus has just had this incredible display of his power, and he sends his disciples away. And Luke tells us why. It's because there's this real rally around Jesus that the people are very excited about him, but they want to turn him into a political king so that he could overthrow the Roman government. And they want to have this whole kind of coronation ceremony with him. And so uh, before the disciples get caught up in that, Jesus sends them away. So they go off in the boat. Jesus dismisses the crowd, and he goes up on the mountain to pray. We see him do that quite often. And at some point in the evening, in the middle of the night, he looks out on the water. He sees his disciples struggling in the storm against the wind and the waves. And then he comes down to them sometime between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., and, and in verse 48, there's this, there's this interesting phrase that says that he meant to pass them by. And, and the phrase should be taken in the sense that he wanted to pass before or pass in view of rather than just go, by, go beyond. It's not like he saw his disciples struggling. He said, I'll just try to sneak by him, right? It wasn't that, right? So it, it's, it's pass in view of. And the theological term is a, is a Christophany. That it's a visible manifestation of Christ, and Jesus is, once again, revealing himself to the disciples. And, and again, you've got to kind of tie back to the Old Testament. So there's a place in the book of Exodus where Moses says to God, I want to see your glory. And God says, well, you can't see my glory or else you'll die. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to hide you in the cleft of this rock and I'll pass before you. I'll, I'll, I'll pass by you so that you'll get a glimpse of my glory. So what God was going to do to comfort his followers is he was going to go down to them and, and walk by them. But in verse 49, they, they cry out. Let's read that in verse 49, they saw him walking on the sea. They thought it was a ghost and they cried out. And, and, and so you got to kind of get the picture here because in the Old Testament, the sea was a place of evil, uh, it, was a, it was a place of demonic power, it was a, a superstitious place. And when they say ghost, it's like a visitation of a demonic power. So you've got these disciples, uh, the the Greek term is they're tormenting against the the sea. That's the Greek phrase there for they're, they're rowing and they're struggling in the storm. So you have these disciples struggling, tormenting against the forces of evil. Here comes what they think is this demonic visitation, but instead it is this person of Jesus Christ who is trampling over evil to bring comfort. To his followers, and there are these calming words in the power of Christ: "Do not be afraid." It's the most—it's the command most uttered from heaven in the scriptures. Do not be afraid. Verse fifty-one tells it that they're—they're still shocked; they're terrified because their hearts were hardened. They were unable to see the true nature of Christ. They've—they've yet to understand the full nature of Christ. They're experiencing the power of Jesus, but they have yet to see Him for who He truly is in faith. And what we've learned in this book already is that nearness to Christ is no guarantee of real faith. Mark is saying it should be. They should understand that Jesus is Lord. They should understand that he's Lord of all, but they don't get it. And if the disciples are in danger of missing it, then I think we might be too. I I was raised in an incredible home. I have two parents who love Jesus. We were raised in the South, so every time church was open, we were there, right? But even despite that, even despite that environment, even despite great parents, always... uh, Christ always being prominent in our house. I still missed it. I didn't come to faith till way after I left home, way after, after college. I, 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 was, I was near the things of God, familiar with God, but not a follower of God. And we've said that here before. Just because you are familiar with Jesus doesn't mean that you're a true follower of Jesus. Our, our eyes have to be open. Our hearts have to be softened to see the true nature and identity of Christ and respond to him in faith. We see here in the story that we can come to Christ with our fear. You can come to Christ with your fear this morning. And so, again, all of these things beg the question of us, where do you go with your fear? Where do you go for rescue and for comfort? The text shows us that looking to Jesus, hearing from Jesus, it drives out our fear. Jesus answers our greatest fear with the greatness of his presence. The creator God is able to comfort his new creation and he has compassion for them. And so we see that we can come to Jesus with our need. We can come to him with our fear. And then in the remainder of the story, we see that we can come to him with our pain. The last three verses they kind of serve as a summary of the ministry of Jesus. Once again, surrounded by crowds. Once again, crowds press in. And once again, Jesus heals and delivers because of the sovereign lordship of Christ, you can come to Him in faith with your pain. You can come to Him with your need. You can come to Him with your fear. You can come to Him with your pain. One of the things that we learn from this passage as we close is that there are, um, there's an appropriate reaction to the compassionate of Christ. In fact, the compassion of Christ, I think, demands a reaction of it. And, and there's two that we see. That, that faith... Our confidence in Jesus grows out of experiencing the compassion of Christ. It, it, in verse 34, he's, the, the scripture says he has compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. It, it, if you're here and by your own admission, you'd say, I'm not a Christian, I'm not a follower of Jesus, then the Bible has a, has a phrase, has a term to describe you. It says that you are a lost sheep. The thing about sheep, if you do any kind of research or study on them, sheep are very interesting animals because uh, th- it's almost like they were created w- with a shepherd in mind. Like they have to have a shepherd to live. They, they can't defend themselves, really. They, they, don't re- they don't even really know where to go and get, get food or, or they just kind of wander around. In fact, there are some sheep, they get so dirty, they get so dirty that they'll just fall over and die because they can't take care of themselves, Right? And so the Scripture says that without the shepherd, who is Jesus Christ, you're a lost sheep. And it does describe, describes Jesus as a compassionate and capable shepherd who provides and satisfies and comforts and calms and rescues and heals those that are His. This is the pleasure of God, to rescue those that are scattered and lost. So we see that our faith grows out of our experiencing the compassion of Christ. And secondly, we see that faith grows in the satisfaction of Christ, You see, the compassion of Christ satisfies needs, fears, pains that we see in this text, but we also see in our lives. Faith is is not something that just ends at the moment of our conversion, because it continues in our feasting on Him as our sustaining and satisfying bread of life. So where do you go for satisfaction? Do you feast on the satisfying bread of life that is Jesus Christ? Or do you go other places for satisfaction? There's There's a a challenge, a charge, but I also think an invitation just to kind of summarize this whole text, and it's this, that we would see the compassion of Christ and come to Him in faith. If you are one of those people here and you'd say, yeah, I'm not, not a Christian, not a follower of Jesus Christ, that's the invitation for you this morning. That's the invitation that you would see the compassion of Christ A God who sees your need, a God who enters into your need, who enters into your pain, who calms your fear, and that you would come to him in confidence that he's able to do more than you dare, dream, imagine. That he's able to satisfy, that he's able to fulfill, that he's able to save. And for those of us who are Christians, we're once again reminded of this because we too, like sheep, go astray, wander, don't we? And we're reminded once again to fix our eyes on the compassion of Christ, that our faith would be uh, built up, that our faith would grow in that, and that we would seek him and him alone for satisfaction and fulfillment. Let's pray. God, thank you for um, this text this morning. And God, I thank you for Jesus, who is the great shepherd. God, who leads us um, through valleys. God, who leads us and makes us to lie in green pastures. God, who provides um, exactly what we need so that we might live a life for the benefit and for the good of others and for the fame and the renown of Jesus Christ. God, I do pray for those who are here um, who would fit that description of a sheep without a shepherd. God, I pray today that you would rescue them, that today would be a day of salvation. God, I pray for the person who's here today who feels like they have a need that is too big and too great, that it's too much for you, or that you're unaware of that need or unaware of the pain that is overwhelming. God, I pray for the person whose uh, fear is stifling and has enslaved them. God, I pray that you would bring rescue to them today. God, I pray that all of us would see the compassion of Jesus Christ and that we would come to you in faith. Jesus, we love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.